32. It was my intention for us to spend a little time at the uh, first part of Isaiah. Then I decided, no, let's do Deuteronomy 32 first. Uh, But if we look at Isaiah... The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. And my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. And there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the words of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? says Yahweh. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. A lot of this is covenant talk. All right? And so I thought we would go back to Deuteronomy 32 and talk about covenant talk there. So Deuteronomy 32. It's a song which might make you go, maybe this isn't covenant talk. No, totally covenant talk. You'll see some parallels as we think through this text. The verse before 32 actually gives you an introduction to 32. Then Moses spoke the words of the song until they were finished. In the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. Like a gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. Ascribe greatness to our God. You know, the, Isaiah started with these exact same words, you might have noticed. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Right? And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. What do you think is going on there? 
You've got them in both. If we're talking about an agreement, which is what a covenant is, it's a pact, it's an agreement, it's a solemn binding between God and, and Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. What is it? Why would this be necessary in that kind of context? Right. Witnesses. All right. So when you've got in Deuteronomy, all right, Moses is saying, all right, speaking for God here, all right, or about to speak of God. Listen up, heavens. Listen up, earth. All right, as witnesses to this pact, to this agreement. Now, I, I read somebody say when they were talking about Isaiah chapter 1, he was like, well, why is he calling heavens to listen? Why is he calling the earth to listen? All right. And his, his answer was, well, because, you know, it's a monotheistic religion. So there's no other gods to talk to. So we'll talk to heaven and earth. And I think this misses the point. All right. Because there are lots of other beings. All right. When God speaks to the heavens, he's, there's lots of beings there. And so it's like God is looking at his witnesses, not only on earth, but also in heaven and saying to the heavenly host. All right saying to those on the earth, and this would be not only not only good, but also malign, spirits would also hear this, alright? Everyone who's listening, alright, here's, here's something I'm going to do. This is essentially what God is doing. He's setting up witnesses, saying here is how this is going to work. And then Isaiah, when that comes around, what's he doing? He's saying, remember how I said these things, and you were white witnesses of these things I said back in Deuteronomy. Now, since you're witnesses, since you witnessed that, now witness their breach of the covenant and my discussion with them. So that's how the two fit together. But Deuteronomy is long before Isaiah. So, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. For may my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe the greatness to our God. This is Moses speaking for God. All right, Moses here delivering, essentially, the covenant. All right, here's Moses delivering the be a witness to everything that's about to happen here. All right. Now, my, my teaching drop is the rain, and my speech distill is the dew. What's the image he's trying to, to bring up here? The gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. If you're me, you might often be annoyed by rain, all right, because it's very inconvenient. Um, generally speaking, Agrarian societies are not going to look that way on rain, right? When rain happens, especially if you're in a rather dry place, right? Like uh, you're going to be extremely happy anytime it rains, unless it happens to be raining way too much in Southeast Texas. My dad is usually pretty happy about rain. He's he's a farmer. He, he that's one of his things he does, and so he's he's usually very happy when it's raining. All right, so I, it's, I get the farmer vibe from my dad. And so this right here is definitely going to be, this is good, all right? Distill like the dew, like a gentle rain upon the earth. This is, in other words, good news, as opposed to what is happening in Isaiah. Continuing to talk about God. The rock, in verse 4, 
his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. God, good. Verse 5, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children, because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay, repay Yahweh, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Back in Deuteronomy, in terms of apostasy, what, is he, what could he be talking about? We know of later apostasies of the people. What's he talking about here? You better know. When is Deuteronomy written? Could be right, because you've got right. They come out of they come out of Egypt, all right. They're going to the Promised Land, all right, and they go directly into the Promised Land, right? No, they don't. What do they do? Right? They're they're scared, all right. They're like, we can't defeat these guys, all right. We can't defeat these guys. We don't believe God can do this, all right. What is God's response to that. You're a faithless generation. None of you are going in. Alright? This generation is going to die, except for what? Caleb and Joshua, right? This generation is going to die. They will not go into the promised land. I assume this must be what it's speaking of here, right? They have dealt, verse 5, corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Make sense? Questions about that? Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not He your Father who created you, who made you, and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your Father, and He will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage. Now at this point, and we need to talk about verse 8, because depending on what translation you're going to read, you're going to see different things. But in general, what's He doing? He's going back, all right, you should know these things, so just think about what your dad told you. And what his dad, what 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 is what knowledge is being passed down here? All right, think about what knowledge should be amongst the people of God. All right, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father. That's verse seven, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind and fixed the borders of the people, where did God divide mankind? The Tower of Babel. All right. So this is referring to the Tower of Babel incident. All right. Think back to this, which was at this point a long time before that. When the God, when God gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the. What's your translation say? Sons of Israel. All right. Sons of Israel. Sons of God. Sons of Israel. Chip, what are you looking at? In Okay. Children of Israel, KJV. 
What you what you got over there, Michael? Something about ESV. ESV, all right. Well, there is a footnote that says Masoretic text, Dead Sea Scrolls, also see Septuagint, sons of God. Mm-hmm. And so, usually your modern translations will go with according to the number of the sons of God. Partially because, well, well, why is this here? Well, because depending on what Hebrew manuscripts you're looking at, you're going to have either the sons of God or you're going to have the sons of Israel. All right, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as you all know very well. All right, this has the sons of of God. What would it mean? Well, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. I don't know what that would even mean. All right, I really don't. Um, which is, I think, a good logical reason for not taking that. However, if you take it according to the number of the sons of God, all right, then this becomes according to the number of the angelic beings he had decided to set over the peoples. And so he said, okay, here are going to be the, the angelic beings that will be over the peoples, and that's how I'm going to divide things up. And I think this fits well into the whole Babel incident, because if you've got people all speaking the same language and working together, and you want to break them up, you want to specifically to scatter them, all right, and you don't want them congregating, change their language. That's certainly what the Genesis account says. What you'd also get, right, if you gave them different angelic beings to guard over them, that would be another thing that would keep them divided. And then later, many of these angelic beings fall, but that's not explicitly here. Yes, sir? It seems like a common idea in the New Testament, because you know, Daniel, the prince of Persia, opposes Michael. Yeah. Yeah, you've definitely you definitely see this idea, and you also I mean whenever Paul's talking about principalities and powers and things like that, right? He's talking about he's not talking about Rome per se. He's talking about the angelic powers that are corruptly running Rome and nations like that. So I think that's generally what's going on here. So he's going back, and he's going back in history and saying, okay, so, all right, at one point, God divided the people of the earth, all right? He divided the people of the earth. He set them under various responsible, all right, angelic beings, which would kind of make sense. It's actually very much God's pattern to set things in a hierarchy. That's actually quite normal for God to do this, all right? Uh, you see it in Daniel, as, as he mentioned, um, I mean, the church ultimately works with under a hierarchy as well, etc. This is very normal for God to say, okay, over these people, I'm going to put this. All right. When you've got Paul talking about government, what does Paul say? God put them in that place to be just. We all will know they're not always just, but that is what God's intention for them to do, is to rule the people in justice. All right. Here, you've got some more thing. He breaks up the people. Now, what's the point of that? Well, the point of that is verse 9. All right, where God scattered the people out of the world and put everything over it. And then later, what does God do? God says, Abraham, he's mine. All right, he's mine. And then, of course, Isaac. And then, of course, Jacob and the people. And so you've got all the world under powers that God has put in place. And then God says, okay, that one's mine. 
that particular group. And that's kind of the point of what he's talking about here. He's talking to them and saying, you forgot your father. All right? Verse 6, is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? All right? You forgot your father in that generation, that wicked generation. Ask the older people. They'll remember this. God broke up the people and then later chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his children, these people, as his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, verse 10, and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the, land, of the field, and he suckled him with the honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat, and you drink foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. All right, so all this is talking about God's treatment of his people. What did he do? He grabbed Abraham, all right? He didn't say his name, but I assume this is what he's talking about, though he would do the same with, of course, Isaac and Jacob. He, he got him. He encircled him, all right? He's like a... a he was like an eagle who wanted to protect his babies, all right? hovered over them, helped them out. All right? And they ate the produce, the produce of the field. All right? God gave them God, things. God blessed them. God protected them. But, verse 15, But Jeshurun grew fat. It's a somewhat unusual name for Israel. It shows up also in Isaiah as well when it's talking covenant talk later. But, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. You know, think back to the rock. Verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect. Bringing back that, that idea, all right? Then he forsook God, the God who made him, and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. Before we move on, go back to um, verse 12, right? You know, the Old Testament is Old Testament is monotheistic, yet isn't. All right? It's monotheistic in the sense of, all right, there is one most high God who created all of things. All right. Also monotheistic in the sense of Israel, you've got one God to worship, just one. All right, and it's the one who made a covenant with you, Yahweh. All right, you've got there in verse twelve, and Yahweh—that's his covenant name. All right, not a generic word for God, but his covenant name. Yahweh alone guided him; no foreign god was with him. So this is just Yahweh, just that one. One being saying, I have a relationship with you, Israel. No others. Just me. All right? In that sense, very monotheistic. Just me. No foreign gods. But, verse 16, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. 
and, or foreign gods you might have. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. What they do? They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. All right, so you've got once again that paternal image, but what do they do? All right, you think back to the golden calf incident. What are they doing? They're sacrificing, but not to God. They're sacrificing to. Does anybody have say anything other than demons there? What's that? Devils. Devils. All right. All right. Malignant spirits. All right. Devils, demons. They sacrificed to demons instead of the one true God. To gods they had never known. All right. To new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock. So you're forgetting all that your family has taught you. You're forgetting all that your fathers taught you. They had a God. Now you're taking in new gods. All right? Very normal for the ancient world to assimilate new gods. Israel was not allowed to do that. All right? Israel is not allowed to go, oh, those are some other new gods. I will sacrifice to those too, just in case. You know, they, maybe they'll help me too. Disallowed. All right? God says, you're mine. I'm yours. I picked you. I brought no gods with me when I did this. They've got their other... They've got their stuff. They've got their portions. Israel, you're mine. And then the Israelites later on go... We'll take these guys too. And God says, no. No sacrificing to demons. They're taking it a lot less serious than he he does if I'm reading this right. The same sexual imagery that you see out of the is knowing. Yeah. It is relational, right? It's not just. Eh, let's just, you know, it's not like, like when Paul is talking to the Athenians, you know, I saw an altar to an unknown God. They set up an unknown God altar just so they can just go, we'll have a general sacrifice to just make sure things are okay, just in case we missed one. All right. It's, it's not like that. It's, there's a relationship. And when you break the relationship with God as your father, all right, that is the imagery we see all through the scripture, spiritual adultery. Yeah. Very much so. Verse 19. What was God's response? Yahweh saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth at its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. All right, so God sees this breach of the relationship, all right? And he says, okay, 
I see what my sons and daughters are doing. I will hide my face from them. Now, the language of the Old of the Old Testament it talks about gods. All right, you, you got to like keep some things in balance. For on the one hand, you see certain statements that make you think you can't ever apply the word God to anything other than Yahweh itself. But you also see statements that go, yes, you should totally do that. All right? I think it's part of the poetry. I think it's part of the effect. Because that word, that word, the word God in Hebrew is very generic, just like actually our word God is too, all right, in English. Now we, when we talk about God, it's not generic. But the word, the general word for God in English is generic because that's how that particular word has generally been for most of human history. Generic, because most nations have been polytheistic. So you get a little different language here. Verse 21, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Okay, well, are they gods or not? When verse 17 it says, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. There's no idea there that these things don't exist. They're there, right? They're just the wrong ones, right? Here, what is it talking about? I think what it basically means is, as compared to me, they are no God, right? And also, certainly not for you, Israelites, certainly not a God for you. There is only one God for the Israelites. And he has a name, and his name is Yahweh. Alright, there is the one God. So I think that's what's going on there. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, golden calf incident, once again, if we bring that back up. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. You know, it's interesting, historically speaking, how this works in two separate ways. In the Old Testament, it works, all right, through God sending other nations to punish. We know this. We talk about it very frequently. And we'll talk about it more because it occurs all the time in the Scriptures. But you also get in the New Testament the notion, all right, that God decides to provoke Israel, all right, by bringing in the nations, right? This is very much Paul's point in Romans 9 through 11. This is one thing that God is doing there, all right? Or what Paul, would, some of the material we recently went through in Acts. You won't listen to me? Fine, Paul says. I'm going to go to the Gentiles, and I will talk directly to them, all right? And this causes issues. This is the notion here. All right. You might not know that he's going to bring in the Gentiles at this point, but certainly later on you'll read it and go, yes. Actually, yes, that is totally what God is going to do in the future. For a fire is kindled in my anger, verse 22, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. God is not pleased. What do you think it means for a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depth of Sheol? He's not very pleased. He's not very pleased. He's going to kill them. He's going to kill them. Almost right? And Sheol, right, associated with low, with down, you bury people, we've talked about this. Notice the parallelism there. For a fire is kindled by my anger, all right, uh, you then parallels not the next line, but the one after it. Devours the earth in its increase. All right? And then you have the second stanza and the fourth stanza parallel. And it burns to the depths of Sheol and sets on fire the foundations of the mountain. All right? 
fire, depth, burning to the depths, fire, burning to the depths. You've got imagery there. You've got, you've got poetry. First and third stanzas match. Second and fourth stanzas match. And, but what does it mean? Just like you said, he will kill them. All right, and that's that's exactly what he did with the uh, the wicked generations. And verse twenty three, I will heap disasters upon them, and I will spend my arrows on them. What does it mean? What do you mean, spend your arrows? Shoot them, right? You've got so many arrows with you. All right, to spend your arrows is not to take one arrow out and shoot them. All right, it's to grab them all. Right? I think that's that's the idea. I'm going to I'm going to exhaust my my anger here. I'm going to spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague. I mean, when he was talking about Abraham, what did he do? And Isaac and Jacob, he blessed them and he gave them food. He gave them sustenance, all right? Here's the opposite. They'll be wasted with hunger, devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send, and poisonous pestilence, you've got the idea in Joel of a, of a locust plague, all right? Pestilence as covenant curse. I will send the teeth of beast against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoors terror. For young men and women alike, women alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. Note the imagery, all right? Everybody, man, woman, everybody, child to the old man, everyone. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces and will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is triumphant. It was not Yahweh who did all this. What does that mean? Oh, it just happened. Hmm? Oh, it just happened. It's by our power that all of this has happened. Why would that be the case? You actually see this historically within within Israel, all right? Israel continuing as a nation doesn't make much sense just from a pure historical perspective, all right? They have been so clobbered, all right? And I'm, I'm thinking about the ancient Israel. Um, some people apply it to modern Israel. Certainly ancient Israel, certainly defeated over and over and over again, all right? It would totally make sense for them to completely disappear and never go on as, a, as an historical entity. But by the time the New Testament's around, there's still the, the remnants of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, Samaria, lots of bad blood between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. But you've still got the tribe of Judah, and you still have some, some of the tribe of Benjamin, right, still in the land, even under Roman occupation, all right? There's lots of things that could have wiped them out before then, all right? Babylon, Assyria should have wiped them out. Right? From a human perspective, they didn't. Babylon kind of did and took them away, but then God brought them back. All right? So for God, what if, and this has to do, right, with when he speaks here, I, I, I look at it as God talking in relation to those other angelic beings. All right? Because he says, all right. 
I'm going to punish my people. And if I wipe them out, all right, what, what, what has happened? Well, what that would mean is he, he grabbed an inheritance and he made something. And then he gave it up. All right. But God's like, no, I'm not actually going to give away my inheritance. In fact, I'm going to keep them alive. All right. We'll see this when we come back to Isaiah. Same, same exact notion. All right. So keep that in mind. I'm going to keep a remnant alive. All right. So that in the, the most unlikeliest things would be true that people from Abraham would, as a unit, continue to live and identify themselves as children of Abraham. Despite all the exiles, despite all the conquests that God sends against them for their sin, God maintains them as a people. Not because they're okay, but because God is faithful and says, I'm going to create a a people and I'm going to keep them alive when they shouldn't be alive. I'm going to keep them because... Had I not feared provocation by the enemy and their adversaries should misunderstand and say, well, we're more powerful. We were able to wipe out God's inheritance. God says, no, I'm going to keep it alive through all of these things. I think that's the thing. And and you see that in a number of ways in the Old Testament and in the New. For his name's sake. Yeah, not not so much for for his name's sake is exactly the right terminology he often uses, right? In verse 28, for they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight? Unless the rock had sold them and and Yahweh had given them up. Now he's switching back and talking to Israel. All right. You don't understand. All right. You don't understand what's going on. Sometimes, hey, Israel, have you noticed that sometimes how when you go attack, you get defeated by a small army? What's the explanation for that? There it is. The rock had sold them and Yahweh had given them up for their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For they, the, the enemies don't have the power behind them. They can't defeat God unless God decides, I'm giving my people up. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and cruel venom of asps. What's the imagery? I thought they were going to take a sip of nice wine and instead they got serpent venom. Mm-hmm. What's the cause? Disobedience. Disobedience. Using Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed, all right, but using Sodom and Gomorrah as images, all right? This also comes back up in Isaiah, and we'll use it once again. So much borrowing between Isaiah and here, but we'll get to that later. The vine comes from the vine of Sodom, from the fields of Gomorrah. In other words, the fruit that comes out of, of Israel is the fruit. All right? they're, they're, they're planting in the soil of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right? They're putting their vines there. And what, what do you get? You plant in a bad place, you get bad fruit. Is not in verse 34. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Vengeance is mine, quoted by Hebrews. 
For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For Yahweh, this is quite an abrupt transition. For Yahweh will ultimately vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods? Right, The demons that they were sacrificing to, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. So God will turn them over to their enemies. All right? and, but he says, I'll come back. I'll vindicate. When will I do this? All right, when will I do this? When they don't have any power. When they have been defeated. And then he will say, where's your gods? Where are those demons that you sacrificed to? Why don't you ask them to get you out of your calamity? Oh, they can't get you out of your calamity? Alright. Verse 39. See now that I, even I, am He. And there is no God beside me. Alright. You've got God standing in the heavens. God the Most High. Who stands at the same level as God? None. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven once again. Right? Appealing to the witnesses. For I lift up my hand to heaven and I swear... As I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh and the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. All right. Very intense. Uh, verse 39, is that resurrection? I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. I think theologically later you can read it that way. Who is the God who created life? God does, right? I think here the primary meaning is probably I, I keep you alive, right? Or I give you life. I give you children. I give you... You know, how do you have kids? Because I let you have them. All right, I give you life. But certainly, also resurrection, very true. God can, in fact, make alive. Well, and it's it's sort of a it's sort of a rebuttal versus the false god. You know, I'm I'm He. There's none beside me. Let me show you why. I kill and I make a lie. They can't. They're not like me. Yeah. I wound and I heal. There's none that can deliver out of my hand. Right. It's like showing how much greater. Yeah. They have some spiritual power, but they're not like me. Mm-hmm. And Jesus speaks about this too, 
right? In the Gospel of John. All right. When when you when someone's in God's hand, who can take them out? None can, right? Theologically, same idea. All right. No one's as powerful as God. No one can thwart him. If he decides to stand up against them, they will ultimately lose. Rejoice with him, O heavens, 43. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. You've got a positive and a negative there. Positive in terms of his people, for he avenges the blood of his children. Right? If someone attacks his children, he will avenge them. And takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Right? He, cleans the, he, needs, he cleanses the people's land. How does he cleanse the people's land of idolatry? Well, he sends often foreign nations to solve that. He cleanses his people's land. This is one of his activities. Moses came and recited all the words of the song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of the law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Covenant talk. Remember these things. This is the relationship between you and your God. Remember these things and don't forget them. Go back to Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 2. Back to where we began. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. You see that? It's bringing back, listen, I, I swore to you before, let me remind you. All right, listen, court witnesses, listen what's going on. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Who have they despised? Their covenant God, their father, the one that had made them, going back to Deuteronomy 32. That is all for today. Soon I hope for us to come back to Isaiah. Maybe we'll do it next week. Maybe not. I have some other plans. Um, read ahead in Isaiah. Think about it. All right. Think about these concepts. And remember, all right, remember from a scriptural perspective, all right, God has a relationship with his people. And when he deals with his people, he expects and asks for faithfulness. All right? This is the covenant arrangement he made with them. All right? We're under a different covenant, but the same thing is true. This is something God expects of us.
right? And promises that if we do them, He will bless. Remember that. And think of that. And know that if we don't, God has ways of cleansing His land. All right? God has ways of cleansing His land. We'll sometimes use them when He needs to. Well, let's be dismissed. Once again, Father, thank you for making us your people, and thank you for giving us a chance to be together and to encourage each other. Help us do that. Help us be wise in that. May we be encouraged. May we use today as a time to examine ourselves, find the sin that's in our minds, in our hearts, and reject it. Help us be wise in these things, and bless us as we spend time together. Bless all of those who are sick and not with us. We're traveling. Bless them as well. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.